The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. Welcome everybody here. Once again, in the name of Jesus Christ, if you're tuning in online, thanks for joining us there. Thanks everybody in the room. And as always, welcome to our visitors. We're glad you're with us this morning at The Springs, which is a church that seeks to be transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And we're in week two of a sermon series this morning called The Gospel According to Moses, Good News and the Torah. So we're in the first five books of the Bible these five weeks, and in week two that puts us in the book of Exodus chapter 24 this morning, verses one through 12. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses went and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up twelve pillars corresponding to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the Israelites who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed oxen as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, here is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the Israelites. They beheld God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Let's pray. God, once again, we gather together on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose, to be called by your word to live lives of resurrection, to live lives of fellowship with each other and fellowship with you to live lives according to your word. God, I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to open us up to these words and to empower us to live these words. And God, I ask you for the gift of preaching. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. One of my favorite Stephen King stories is Misery. I haven't read the book, but I have seen the movie. Maybe some of you older folks have seen it. I think I saw it a little too young because it freaked me out for a long time. 
And it's the story of a famous novelist named Paul Sheldon who gets in a car accident and he's rescued by his self-proclaimed number one fan, Annie Wilkes. And she takes him to her house where she nurses him back to health, but he quickly realizes he's not a guest in her house. He's a prisoner there. Annie is deranged and a villain and all kinds of terrors ensue in the story. Now, again, I've never read the book, but I have friends who are Stephen King fanatics and one of them tells me that there's actually a deeper layer of significance to the story of misery because apparently Stephen King was writing this book while he himself was in misery because he was suffering from a debilitating addiction to cocaine. Right, so... Annie, Stephen King says, stands for cocaine. Annie is his drug problem. She is his number one fan who won't leave him alone. That adds a whole new layer to the misery story. Right? When you come back to the story knowing that, it opens up a whole other layer of depth and meaning and significance that we couldn't have seen just at the literal level of the plot line of the story. There's something more going on beneath the surface. Here in week two of the Gospel According to Moses, we're in Exodus, and we can't come to the first five books of the Bible the same way after the startling claim that Jesus makes in John chapter five. He's talking to some of the Judean leaders, and Jesus says in John five, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Moses wrote about me. Moses wrote about Jesus. That's a startling revelation. I don't know about you, I've read Genesis through Deuteronomy, and I've never come across the name Jesus of Nazareth, because he was born many, many, many years later. But Jesus says, Moses wrote about me in the five books of Moses. That's a startling claim that adds a whole new layer of significance to the Old Testament, to Genesis through Deuteronomy, to the five books of Moses. There's a whole new layer of depth and meaning and significance because we know somehow in, through, behind, in the text is Jesus the Christ. Moses, who writes of the living God of Israel, writes of that God incarnate in Jesus. So what will we find in the book of Exodus in chapter 24 this morning knowing that Jesus says Moses wrote about him? Let's dive into that good news in Exodus beginning in the last verse of our text, chapter 24 verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, "Come up to me on the mountain and wait there." I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Law, that's that Hebrew word Torah. If you've been wondering what our subtitle is talking about, good news and the Torah, it's talking about God's law. That's what that word means, God's teaching or law or instruction. But it can also mean some other things too. We use the word Torah to refer to the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
We also use the word Torah, if we're kind of thinking in concentric circles, we use the word Torah to refer to the law God gives at Sinai. So actually just the four prior chapters, Exodus 20 through 23, God gives the law to the people of Israel to constitute them as a people. We talk about that as Torah. And then even smaller in the very center is the Ten Commandments, Right? Those are the heart of the law. The, the Torah is the Ten Commandments. So the Torah, the law, this is what God gives to his people. And the law is good news. Right? That's what our subtitle says. The good news begins in the Torah, and the Torah is still good news. Right? The first five books of the Bible, we said last week, that's where God's story begins with Israel, with Abram and Sarah. The good news starts there, and God's story, God's law, God's commandment, the Torah in general, is still good news. It's the scripture that founds the church. This is one of those drumbeats that you all have heard me bang on about time and time again. The relationship of the church to the Old Testament. Now, of course, I know there's parts of the Old Testament and it's hard to figure out how, how is Moses writing about Jesus here? How is this really good news, right? I understand that. But we do need to acknowledge we have a two-volume holy book, the Old and the New Testaments. And in fact, one of those Testaments the church lived without for over a hundred years, and that's the New Testament. As one of my cheeky Church of Christ professors said in college, uh, if you want to be like the new first century church, you might need to rip the New Testament out of your Bible. What he's really getting at, though, is that we didn't have a New Testament for about a hundred years, right? But now we do. God has given us the New Testament because the apostles are dead, right? The New Testament is what you need when you can't talk to and query a living apostle, right? That's what the New Testament is for. It's the witness to the resurrection of Jesus. The Old Testament has always been there, right? The church has always been founded by Israel's scriptures. And it's vital for us. It's absolutely vital, right? And some peoples in other parts of the world and here, we've tried to reverse that order. We've tried to just use the New Testament to to rip it out. They tried to do that in Germany, in the 19th century, the 20th century, I don't have to tell you how that turned out. The Old Testament, the Torah, is vital because it's the beginning of God's good news. The law, the commandments matter to God because they matter to Jesus. Right? Think about Jesus. The law matters to him. Right? He gets a reputation as a maverick and he does make some changes. But Jesus cares about the law. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, how do I find eternal life? And Jesus' answer in, in Matthew's account, he says, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the story concludes with Jesus more famously telling him, sell all your possessions, and he walks away sad because he's got a lot of them. 
But the first part still stands. The guy asks, eternal life, how do I find it? Keep God's word. Keep God's ways. Keep God's laws. He names half the Ten Commandments, and he adds from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The law, the Torah, matters a great deal to Jesus. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. I'm a big fan of uh, comic strips, cartoons. I've always enjoyed those. And so my dad surprised me a couple Christmases ago with a a two-volume set of these New Yorker cartoons. And I opened them up recently, and I was happy to find there's actually an entire Moses section in there. And one, a couple of them stuck out to me. There's the one with Israel carousing with the golden calf. And Moses says, well, actually, they are written in stone. They really are in stone. But I like this other one, too. It's a lot simpler. It's Moses with the tablets of the law and just a five-word request to God. Mind if I tweak it? Mind if I tweak it? Obviously, this is a stab at humor, But there is something to this. There is a sense in which Jesus tweaks the law, right? Jesus says, hey, I I know you've heard it said, eye for an eye, that's in the law, but now we're going to turn the other cheek. He says, I know Moses let you divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart for, you know, really easily, but according to me, this is how we're going to go with that, right? Jesus cares about the law, cares about the commandments, cares about the Torah, but he reinterprets it for us. Now we read and live in accordance with the law through the lens of Jesus, through the one whom Moses wrote about, right? Moses wrote about Jesus, so Jesus shows us how to read Moses. Moses wrote about Jesus, so Jesus shows us how to live Moses. He gives us the book of the covenant. And that's what Moses reads to Israel, going back to our text in verses 3 and 7 of Exodus 24. Moses went and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. He reads the book of the covenant, the law, and the people say, all right, we'll do it. That's what you're requiring of us? Okay. And I I really like, uh, one biblical scholar said this about Abraham and Moses. He said, the covenant that God made with Abraham was full of I will promises, but the covenant with Moses was full of you must requirements. Now, that's not a perfect framework. God says I will to to Moses. He does things for Israel, right? And he also requires things of Abraham. But it does get at this twofold nature of the covenant, right? On the one hand, God does, God is, and does for us. On the other hand, God calls us to do. God requires of us certain things. 
He requires a way of life for us. It's kind of like Paul, too. You see that in Paul's letters in the New Testament? He'll spend a while talking about who God is, what God has done, and then he switches over and he says, okay, now this is how we behave in light of that. Right? This is what we have to do. This is the ethics based on who God is and what God has done. Jesus has redeemed you from the curse of the law, in Galatians, he says, of trying to justify yourself according to your works. But then in Romans, chapters 3 and 7, Paul says, do we then overthrow the law through this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Our relationship with the law is changed but we still have the law. Now it's called the law of Christ. Right? We still have to follow and walk in God's ways because God has brought us into his covenant with Israel. Covenant. We use that word mostly when we talk about Israel's God. We also use that word when we talk about marriage. The marital covenant. Right? I've had the, the honor of officiating just a few wedding ceremonies in my years as a minister, but each one of them has always included some form of that classic vow, right? The vow that says, with this ring, I, Brett, right, take you to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward for as long as we both shall live. Right? These words, they're doing something. It's a vow. It's a vow. It makes a husband and wife, makes a married couple, but it also recalls them to behavior, right? It calls them to live in light of those words. It says, hey, I'm going to live in certain ways only towards you. Right, And so I'm not going to live that way with other people. Right, I'm going to be faithful when the going gets tough. I'm not going to ditch you Right, in sickness when we're poor. Right, It calls us, not only does it create a relationship, a covenant, but it also brings you into a way of living. Right, It, it outlines a way forward for your life. Life with God is like that. Right? God's words God's law, it creates a relationship with him, and that relationship, that covenant, calls us to live in a certain way. Life with God means living according to God's life-giving laws. But the important part is the relationship. The important part is the fellowship with God. Right? And we see that in verses 9 and 10 of our text. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. They saw the God of Israel. They see God, the living God. And somehow they don't die, right? And our text struggles to describe this indescribable reality, even the reality around God. It has to use metaphor and simile, right? It uses the word like 
twice. It says, under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. This is what it's about. This is what it's all about. Fellowship with God. Knowing, seeing, being with the living God of Israel. Now, the laws are important, but the laws are what fund and protect and promote that life with God, right? The laws are the safety presentation. You guys ever been to do something fun like, you know, zip lining or rafting, skydiving, whatever, and you go and you're excited about this wonderful experience, but inevitably there's the boring safety presentation right beforehand, right? Where somebody gets up or they play a video and they tell you all of the things you have to do in order to not die on the way to doing the thing you wanna do, right? All of the things you have to observe and think about in order to successfully do the experience that you're really there for. That's kind of what the law is like, right? It's really important Like the person giving that presentation, they're doing it because they've probably seen things go wrong in a really gnarly way. And the road is narrow, right? It's easy to fall off into the ditch. It's easy to get things wrong in a gnarly way. God's seen it happen before. So the law is there. Our eyes glaze over, but it's what allows us, it allows us to reach the thing we're actually trying to experience, which is fellowship with God. The law is there to keep us safe, to keep us thriving and flourishing as human beings as we head towards life with God himself. And therefore, the law is our life with God. It funds and protects and promotes our life with God. But it's really about fellowship with God. That's really the thing itself, is seeing God, knowing God, living with God. On any list of the most important Christian thinkers of all time, you're going to have St. Thomas Aquinas on there. 13th century philosopher, friar, theologian, and really probably one of the smartest guys in world history. Brilliant guy. His big work, his magnum opus, was the Summa Theologiae, which is the summary of theology. Quite, you know, quite an ambitious task, right, to summarize our talk about God. And he works on this, the Summa, for years and years and years. And then Thomas has an experience. He goes to worship, which included the Eucharist, communion. And he falls into a trance. He has a vision. He has an ecstatic experience of God. And they say after that experience, he stopped working on the Summa. It's still unfinished to this day. He never finished it. He spoke little, apparently. His secretary asked him, begged him to try and keep working on it, asked him about it, pleaded, and Thomas finally said, look, after what I experienced Everything I've written seems like straw to me. Seems like chaff. It's like the the worthless shell that falls off the thing itself. It's really about being with God. 
That's the thing itself is God, is what we're after, is experiencing God. And all of the other words and regulations and stuff surrounding it, that falls away in the glory of the thing itself, fellowship with the living God. And it's this God that Moses and his companions actually see. Going to verses 8 and 11 at the end of our text. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, here is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then in verse 11, God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the Israelites. They beheld God and they ate and drank. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Is that ringing any bells? There's blood, there's sacrifice, there's the words of a liberating prophet and mediator. There's representatives from the 12 tribes of Israel. There's the word of the Lord and the presence and fellowship and eating and drinking with God. The bell that it's ringing should be Luke 22. Then Jesus took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There it is again. Blood, covenant, sacrifice. The words of a liberating prophet and mediator, representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. The word and presence of God eating and drinking with the Lord. As Brad East says, in the upper room, we are again at the foot of Mount Sinai. The blood of Jesus Christ has brought us into the new covenant. It has set us on the road, given us the chance at fellowship with the living God, given us the chance, like Moses, to eat and drink with the Lord, to eat and drink together as companions in fellowship with the covenant God. The God who this is all about, the God who life with this God just peels away all the words and rules and ordinances like chaff. Because life with this God is exactly what we're made for. But those words and ordinances, the Torah, God's good law, is there to help bring us to him. It's there to help guide us on the narrow road to life with him. And so we keep the commandments. Right? We keep the commandments as interpreted by the one Moses wrote about. We relate to God through the law, through his goodness and grace in his word. But that word has become decisively incarnate in the Jesus who welcomes us today to his tables. So at the tables this morning, church, I want you to think and ask yourself, what part of the law, what part of God's good instruction 
do I need to recommit myself towards? What kind of vow renewal do I need to have with God, with one another, to live faithfully according to his life-giving law? To live according to the Sermon on the Mount, to live according to the word of Jesus and according to the life of Jesus that goes all the way to the cross to shed the new blood of the covenant that is here available at these tables where we together encounter the God who loves us and calls us to fellowship with him, calls us to eternal life. So church, I wanna invite you to stand and come to the tables now and dine in covenant with God and one another at the table Jesus provides. Come to the tables, Spring Church.